came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views, I get confused. Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday the 26th of April, 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today our feature interview is with Professor Matthew Bales, who is the director of the ARC, the ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery, OSGRAV. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And then we'll have a quick news roundup. So first we cross over to Melbourne, Australia. Hello, Matthew. Hi, Brandon. Today we're very privileged to be speaking with Professor Matthew Bales. Matthew is the founder and director of the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing at Swinburne University. He's director of the ARC, the ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery, OSGRAV. He's an advisor to the Breakthrough Listen Project, as well as leading the Mere Time Project. His team also developed a supercomputer for the 50-year-old Malonglo telescope to transform it into a pulsar timing and FRB discovery machine. We should note here that Dr. Bales and Duncan Lorimer were the discoveries of FRB's fast radio bursts, which we have featured in a few previous episodes. He has a huge number of papers published with 16,000 professional citations in astrophysics journals. Most recently, he's co-author of a paper about some puzzling discoveries about a reawakening magnetar using instruments such as the new SKA precursor Meerkat telescopes in South Africa, the iconic Parks dish in Australia, and the Chandra and Swift space-based instruments. We'll get to that a bit later, but first, Matthew, can you tell us about growing up in South Australia, please? And tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. And did you have dark skies there in your backyard in Adelaide? Yeah, I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Adelaide. At the time, the skies weren't particularly dark, but Adelaide doesn't get a lot of cloud, so we're certainly familiar with looking up and seeing the night sky. I didn't really ever want to be an astronomer, and nor an amateur astronomer. I really had a passion for understanding how the universe worked. Yep. 
And although I found the concept of black holes and things like neutron stars in, intriguing, I was really more interested in learning about the scientific method and how we knew about how things in the universe worked and moved and were born, etc. Okay, how we know what we know. So, Matthew, after high school, you went on to do your BSc honours at the University of Adelaide. What was your focus at that stage? Yes, I started off at high school doing engineering. None of my parents had been to university, so we were fairly ignorant of how one became a scientist. Yep. And my father thought it would be good for me to have a profession, so I started off doing electrical engineering at the University of Adelaide, but I really enjoyed physics subjects, and I had one particular lecturer who had a very sort of poetic style, and I found his explanations of of how the universe worked and so on very interesting, and I ended up switching from an engineering degree to a, a science degree, and I wanted to work in relativity, and so I started studying relativity the only way you can, and that is by using stars. Yep. Okay, and after that, you headed up to the Australian National University in Canberra to do your doctorate on the origin of pulsar velocities. Tell us how you developed that interest in pulsars, and you might want to give our audience a reminder of what a pulsar is. Sure. So pulsars are neutron stars. They have a like a lighthouse beam of radiation. We can't see the beam in many wavelengths, but we can see it very well in the radio, occasionally in X-rays, and sometimes in gamma rays. These neutron stars are about a half million times heavier than the Earth, but they're only 20 kilometers in diameter. Yep. The fastest one rotates over 700 times a second, and the slowest one is about once every 20 seconds. So these neutron stars um, span a a vast array of parameters. In my honours year, I was studying a a very special neutron star that was orbiting another one, and they were travelling around each other around about 300 kilometres per second, and these stars were very good for testing the general theory of relativity. And in fact, the discoverers went on to win the Nobel Prize for physics for the discovery of what was called the binary pulsar. Because the binary pulsar's orbit was shrinking by three millimetres per eight hours. And they actually managed to measure that. And that was precisely the rate at which general relativity predicted the orbit should shrink if they were giving off gravitational waves. Cool. So really it was the study of general relativity that led me to pulsars. And then when I got to ANU, I met a guy called Dick Manchester at the CSIRO. And he was one of the sort of leading pulsar experts in the world. And I did a joint PhD between CSIRO and Mountstrom Observatory at ANU. Fantastic. And then you headed off to work with NASA, then Manchester, where the famous Jodrell Bank is located then back to Australia with the CSIRO, then Melbourne University, 
and then to a very young Swinburne University, where you founded the now world-renowned Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. That must have been an exhilarating experience to watch Swinburne graduates and researchers become astrophysics leaders all over the world now. And you're back there as a director now, or did you never leave? In your introduction, you said I was the founder and director of the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. That, that's true, but I, I stepped down from that position in 2010 yep. and became a pro-vice-chancellor. And then I'm now the director of the National ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery, which is still a part of the Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing, but a, a, a national one. Fabulous. Now, let's move on then, Matthew, to your recent Magnetar research. You worked with a large team using a great array of instruments to look at a strangely behaving Magnetar. How was this team assembled? What instruments were used? And how was the research organised? And what did you discover? And where does that lead us next? A new theoretical model for Magnetars? Oh, and you might want to briefly explain what a magnetar is, please, Matthew. Yeah, so a magnetar is an extremely magnetic neutron star. So we measure magnetic fields in astronomy in a, a unit called Gauss. Yep. A fridge magnet would be about, you know, 100 Gauss. And when you have a magnet that strong, although it's attracted to, to iron and so on, you don't notice too many fancy things about it if you grab one and, and twist it around. Yep. turns out if you make a magnet spin, it, it doesn't actually like it, and it exerts a torque protesting about that spin. <laughs> it actually gives off something called magnetic dipole radiation, but it's so weak with sort of the magnets that we're used to that we, we don't notice it. Yep. Magnetars are around about 10 to the 14 gauss. That's one with 14 mm-hmm. zeros after it. Yep. And they're very magnetic objects, and the magnetic field seems almost a little bit unstable. So the neutron stars I'm used to studying have magnetic fields of like 10 to the 12 Gauss, maybe a little bit less than that. The millisecond pulsars are only about 10 to the 8 or 10 to the 9 Gauss. So these things are maybe a million times more magnetic than what's what we call a millisecond pulsar. And that seems to give them very different rotational properties to the normal pulsars we see. So one of the things about these magnetars is that they actually change their effective torque by very large factors in a very short space of time. And it makes their rotational history very difficult to track. The other thing they do is that they sometimes just completely disappear on us and we can't see them at all. So these magnetars have these reawakenings or rebirths. And when they do, we get very excited because you only have a limited window in which to observe these systems before they fade away. It's usually a a year or few. Like most new objects that we've only just discovered, there seems to be different classes. And there seems to be some pulsars that become magnetars and then stop again. That's so cool. Now, recently you were also involved with the discovery of a century, that is, the momentous discovery of gravitational waves. 
Can you tell us a little about that, please, and tell us about your work with Ozgrav and where that research project has led you and your colleagues so far? Yes, yeah, so Ozgrav is a, a national kind of coalition of six universities across Australia. Swinburne's one of those. And many people in Australia are members of what's called the LIGO Scientific Collaboration. There's about a thousand people around the world that have come together to try and discover gravitational waves. Yep. That, of course, happened on the 14th of September 2015. The LIGO scientific collaboration uses two gravitational wave detectors in the US, one on the east and one on the west coast of, of the USA. Yep. And these detectors look for tremors in the space-time continuum. So if a gravitational wave passes through a detector, causes the arms to get shrunk and, and stretched, and using quantum optics, we can actually detect these deviations in otherwise normal sort of space-time continuum. Yep. And if they're correlated between the two antennas, then you become more confident that they're real. If they're very, very strongly correlated, you can effectively prove that a gravitational wave has passed through the detector. This first happened um, back in 2015. It was published in 2016. And luckily for us, it was published just a few months before the ARC was deciding what the next centres of excellence would be. So I was the nominated director for that centre. I certainly wasn't involved in the discovery of the first black holes, but Now our university is part of the LIGO scientific collaboration. And when the first neutron stars that were merged were discovered by LIGO, we were ready to point our telescopes in the sky to try and catch the cosmic fireworks display that followed. Excellent. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we spoke with Manish Kaleb about her work with the Malonglo Synthesis Telescope. Can you tell us about that instrument and the upgrade you gave it and its new capabilities? So the Mongolo telescope is actually the largest radio telescope in the southern hemisphere at the moment. It's 36,000 square metres of collecting area, but it's got, in some parts, 1960s technology and in other parts, 1980s technology. So it's made up of two orthogonal arms that are at right angles to each other. Yep. They're both about a mile long, that's 1,550 metres or so, and about 11 metres wide. And these two sort of large parabolic troughs can point at the sky with a beam that's a few degrees wide. Yep. And up until, say, 2015 or so, there was no capability to do high time resolution work at the telescope. So our group partnered with the University of Sydney and we built them a sort of mini supercomputer which we installed at the site. And this computer processes data from the sky roughly every millisecond. Yep. And we search for these mysterious things called fast radio bursts that are occurring in the heavens. These are flashes of radio emission. People don't actually know what causes them yet, although we suspect it's got something to do with either a neutron star or a black hole because the burst is so short in time. And these flashes seem to occur many thousand times a day. But radio telescopes only look at such a small part of the sky that there's only about 50 that have been found. 
So Mwangalo has an advantage in it. It looks at a large amount of the sky and it's got a large collecting area. Yep. The receiver technology is it's kind of cheap because it has to catch data from so many different parts of the telescope. So there's 352 independent receivers. So it's not sort of super sensitive, but it does look at a large amount of the sky. And it's found five fast radio bursts in the last couple of years. And the very latest one, we actually managed to dump the voltages that were being induced in the receiver at the time of the burst because we detected it within about a second of it occurring. And so we still had a copy of the raw voltages for the last 10 or 15 seconds in in our computer's memory, and we wrote them out to disk, and that enabled us to study the system on microsecond timescales, which has only ever been possible for one other fast radio burst. It's one called the repeater, which is quite a famous one. It's the only one that we know of that repeats. And this fast radio burst showed structure on timescales down to about 40 microseconds. So there's something either in the magnetosphere of the fast radio burst or near the black hole or whatever it is that's forming them that is only something like 40 microseconds in time across. So if you multiply that by the the speed of light, you can get a the idea that we're talking scales of only a kilometre or, or few yep. that are, are causing these systems. Look, while we're on fast radio bursts, what is it that convinced you that they're the real thing? Yeah, so as you said in your introduction, I worked with Duncan Lorimer and, and his team in publishing the first one. I was at the Parkes Telescope with Duncan and... He showed me some of the, the hints that they detected something interesting and we were lucky enough to have some tools to be able to look at the data in, in a, a different way than, than Duncan could. And we're very surprised to see such a perfect, what we call, sweep of the radio emission from the high frequencies down to the low frequencies. Yep. But the Lorimer burst was so incredibly bright that it, it almost seemed too good to be true. <laughs> and if you have a very bright object... Normally in nature, if you can detect one really bright star, there's usually sort of thousands of faint ones. In nature, very bright things seem to be rare, but you often have large numbers of fainter objects. And just the way that things are distributed in the universe, if the Lama burst was real, we should have been detecting fainter versions of it or analogues of it further away. And our initial attempts to do that all failed. So I was a little bit concerned about the reality of the Lama burst. And even more so when one of my students, Sarah Burke's Law, discovered that there was a source of man-made interference near the Parkes telescope, which also showed some of the same characteristics as the Lorimer burst. In the meantime, we'd commissioned a new set of receiver technology by working with our friends at Berkeley, which was sort of perfect for looking for fast radio bursts and Although I might have sort of doubted their reality, we were fortunate that a PhD student at the University of Manchester was searching the results of a new survey that we've done in collaboration with our international partners. And we actually found four fast radio bursts in the first pass that our new survey's data. And one of them was, again, very bright. But the improvements in technology 
really made us think that these things must be real. And then I think by the time the repeater came along, there was no doubt they were real. Absolutely, yep. So one of your specialties now, Professor Bales, is using custom-built supercomputers to create models and simulations and to extract information from huge data sets. Now, this is the face of modern astronomy. And every day almost, we're hearing of new instruments like the SKA precursors and FAST coming online that generate mountains of data so quickly that we barely have time to interrogate loops of that data. And we certainly don't appear to have the data warehouses and storage capacity to save it for later use. Now, I'm reminded of the importance of archival data with your work on the Lorimer burst. Do we simply run the risk of losing really valuable data because our algorithms can only find what they're looking for? Yes, I think that's certainly an issue. The Mongolo telescope, for instance, catches 22 gigabytes a second of data. Yep. And it's impossible to look at every byte by eye. I don't see it as a problem. I think it's just a new skill set that we're learning. But I am reminded that when we discovered the Lorimer burst, the data processing software that we used actually looked at the Lorimer burst and the fact that it was so bright and decided that it must be interference because nothing that bright should exist in the sky that we didn't already know about. Yep. So the Lorimer burst was lucky and it was in a 13-beam receiver. And its arrival in the main beam of the telescope was so loud that our software decided it must be interference and actually deleted it. (laughs) Uh, We were lucky enough to pick it up in two of the what we call side lobes, which just got a faint echo of the Lorimer burst. But it was so bright that it was actually a reasonable signal. So I've no doubt that similar things are probably happening today, that we're probably deleting things that are actually interesting, but nobody can complain at the rate of scientific progress you know, with these new tools. I think that in time, we're not going to let too much slip through the net, but we're at a transition between looking at your data by eye and looking at it with computers, and it's just part of the evolution of science, I think. It is indeed very exciting times. Thanks, Matthew. So what an amazing and wonderful journey. Do you want to tell us about some of the other collaborations you're working on at the moment? Certainly. So the South Africans have just built a new telescope. It's an official SKA Pathfinder. It's called the Meerkat. Yep. It's 64 dishes in the Karoo Desert in the north of South Africa. And it's beautifully engineered. And they have almost all of the 64 dishes working, and I'm part of a collaboration that stretches from South Africa to Australia, over to Europe and the US and Canada, and we're bringing together some of the world's best, what we call pulsar timers, to use this telescope to look at radio pulsars. Now, like most good new bits of technology, it's quite a bit more sensitive than existing telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere. And we think we'll be able to look at over a 1,000 pulsars a day 
using this instrument and study gravity in in ways that that haven't been possible in the southern hemisphere today. So that's an, an exciting project. We should get our first tranche of official time in the, in the next month or two, and we're just putting together the necessary sort of data processing pipelines and tests to check that that system's working the way it should. Fantastic. Okay. Now, the microphone is all yours now, Matthew, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in education, in equity, in outreach, our quest for knowledge and space, etc. It's all yours. Okay, thanks, Brendan. Okay, I think science is, is well-funded globally. I don't think it's well-planned globally. I'm very fortunate that I'm the director of a national centre of excellence and we get seven years of very generous funding, not only from the Australian Research Council, but also our, our host universities. Yep. And that really allows us to not only plan our science very well, but also to collaborate with people in a non-competitive way. Many scientists around the world have to try and get individual grants or grants in a very big pool. And that's a very competitive and sometimes destructive process. So I'm very fortunate that I don't have to spend a lot of my time applying for money. I know what I'm going to get for the next seven years. So I think these large-scale investments are very good. They do require people to play nicely together. And, but I think it really puts the onus for success back on the scientists to attain these very large grants. I really feel sorry for people who early in their career fail to win research funding because if you get grants early on, you get a bigger team, it's possible to be more productive. If you don't get grants, you often get given more teaching. And it can be a bit of a, a sort of vicious cycle where you don't produce as much, so next time you apply for a grant, you have even less chance, and you end up with sort of haves and have not. Yeah. So I think enabling our scientists to plan is, is very important. But I also think scientists have an obligation to tell the public what they're doing with the money and getting out into the schools and teaching children about the excitement of science, the value of science. And also when our PhD students come out the other end of their PhDs, I'm not a big fan of 100% of them trying to to stay in science. I think it's very good for them to take those skills out into the workforce and and use the techniques that you use and the the discipline behind the scientific discovery and put that to use for, for industry to generate, if you like, jobs and growth. Excellent. And, yeah, we're calling this uh, golden age of astrophysics at the moment, and what comes from it, we just, there's something new and exciting every day. So, thank you, Matthew, and right now, we'll warmly invite our listeners to follow at Matthew Bales on Twitter, and follow his fabulous journey of discovery. And thank you so much, Professor Matthew Bales. My pleasure, Brendan. Bye.
Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it all going? All very good here, but very dry, Ian. We're looking forward to some rain at some stage in the future. We know it will rain again, just not in the short term. Yeah, it's been a bit like that here. We've had the ongoing summer in the middle of autumn uh, phenomena, which you probably know far too well at the moment. So all the rain that we were hoping to get to reduce the risk of fires hasn't happened. Yeah, Uh, very true. In the meantime, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky? Well, what's up in the sky in the coming weeks? Lots of very interesting things. Those of you who have been watching the Western Horizon shortly after sunset will be noticing brilliant Venus and indeed the period between civil twilight, half an hour after sunset, and nautical twilight, an hour after sunset. Venus is quite prominent. It's still fairly low to the horizon during those times, but if you're looking any time after 15 minutes after sunset, Venus is quite apparent in the sky. If you've also been watching, Venus has been coming closer and closer to the fantastic cluster of the Pleiades. Now, it's a bit hard to see because until it's quite low in the horizon, the sky isn't quite dark enough to really see the Pleiades quite easily. But if you've got a pair of binoculars and if you can wait till about an hour after sunset and you've got a nice clear horizon, Venus and the Pleiades will be coming closer and closer together and they'll be at their closest on May the 4th. So that'd be quite something to have a look out for. But at the same time, Jupiter has been rising higher and higher into the sky. Indeed, if you go out tonight or for the next few weeks, you'll see just as Venus is setting on the western horizon, Jupiter will be rising in the east. Yep. For the next few weeks, you'll be able to see Venus just as it's setting on the western horizon and its opposite partner, bright Jupiter, rising on the eastern horizon. And the, the, the pair, if you've got the opportunity somewhere which is nice and clear all around, watching the pair, one sink and the other rise, is going to be quite lovely. Now, of course, the rising of Jupiter at this uh, time uh, heralds the fact that Jupiter will be at opposition very soon. Opposition is the Earth is directly between the Sun and the planet for those outer planets. So at this time, Jupiter will be appearing at its biggest and brightest as seen from Earth. Now, of course, Jupiter is so big that it doesn't really get too much bigger when you observe it through a telescope uh, over the next few weeks, but it's still a a fantastic time to observe it. Uh, Around about midnight, Jupiter will be very high in the northern sky. Uh, Excellent time for viewing Jupiter and its moons and the great red spot. So there's lots of good viewing to be had. Uh, Of course, uh, because it's now rising in the evening sky, you don't have to wait till early morning to get some good uh, views of Jupiter. And for those of you who are interested in imaging Jupiter's uh, dance of the moon, or perhaps even its great red spot, there's lots of opportunities over the coming weeks to see some very interesting moon events in conjunction with the great red spot going across. So the opposition of of Jupiter is on May the 9th, so that will be uh, a very good uh, time to watch it. If you're still uncertain which, that, that, which of the bright objects above the western horizon uh, is Jupiter, Jupiter is the brightest object above the western horizon. It's just above the head of uh, Scorpius the Scorpion, a very distinctive J-shaped constellation. And on April the 30th, the moon will be very, very close to Jupiter. So you'll be able to easily tell. And if you can remember, 
its position with respect to the other stars around the bright uh, golden object close to the moon on April the 30th is Jupiter, and keep on watching over the next few days. Excellent. Now, as uh, Jupiter is rising towards opposition, so is Saturn, and so is Mars. Although Saturn is not in opposition until next month, and Mars a bit later. It'll have to wait till a bit later in the evening, till about 11 o'clock, before uh, both Saturn and Mars are high enough above the horizon to be readily visible. Although Saturn is in Sagittarius, it's very close to the globular cluster M22. Uh, those of you who have been hearing me talk about this will have noticed that it's been very close to the globular cluster M22 for quite some time. But at this month's season at its closest, where on uh, May the 4th, the globular cluster M22 and Saturn will be at its closest. Sadly, tragically, however, that's also when the Moon and Saturn is at their closest. So the light of the moon will sadly drown out the globular cluster, even though M22 is one of the brightest globular clusters in the sky and a very interesting binocular and uh, telescope target. Taking photographs at this time will be pretty much a waste of time. Yep. But don't worry, as the moon moves away over the next few days and new dark uh, skies uh, approach, the, moon, the um, Saturn won't move too far away from M22. So in binoculars, they'll be a beautiful sight. And again, if you move your binoculars around, you'll see lots of interesting deep sky objects not far from Saturn. Now, Mars. Mars is brightening. It's now very obviously bright red. If you are looking to the uh, east around about 11 o'clock, Jupiter is very obviously the bright golden object ahead of the J-shape of Scorpius. And then further down below, the tail of Scorpius is a, is a golden, a bright golden object, that's Saturn. And below that again is a bright red object, that's Mars. So Mars is very easy to pick up. It's not around near anything particularly exciting just at the moment, but over the next few weeks you'll see it come closer and closer to a relatively faint but still interesting globular cluster in the 75. So keep your eye on that. Yep. And also on May the 6th, the, um, the waning moon is now very close to, to Mars, and they will look uh, quite nice. In fact, the pattern formed by the moon, Mars, and Saturn will look very attractive in the uh, early evening, and then later on the early morning skies. Lovely. With most of the planetary action moving to the evening skies, there has been, of course, less of a desire to get up in the early morning before the cock crow, so to speak. But if you get up, Mercury is at its best over the next few weeks. Mercury has been climbing higher and higher and it's becoming brighter and brighter and it's really quite obvious indeed. Uh, even though it's relatively close to the horizon and the Mercury never gets very high above the horizon. If you look about an hour before the sun is about to rise in the east, you'll be able to see that the brightest object above the eastern horizon is Mercury. And if you're interested in pointing a telescope at it, even though it's not very big, Mercury is about at its half-moon phase. So it'll be interesting to watch through a telescope. It'll, of course, be sort of like a, a bright white blob that is, uh, looks like a half a moon, and you won't, you won't see any detail. But it is interesting to be able to see, for the most people who have only ever seen Mercury as a bright dot, be able to see the phases of Mercury. So it's a good opportunity to have a look at the phases of Mercury. I left out the phases of Venus. At the moment, Venus is a distinct gibbous shape, 
and it'll be like that for some time before we get to the more exciting half moon and crescent shapes later on this year. Ian, would strong binoculars be able to pick up the phases of Mercury? No, no, Mercury is too small to be picked up in binoculars. And, okay. uh, you can pick up the phases of Venus in binoculars if you have very good binoculars and it's round about the crescent phase. Yep. But for Mercury, no, no, you're not going to see anything. Okay. Okay, Ian, do you have a tangent? Yes, I do. Have you been watching the, the recent reboot series of Lost in Space? No, I haven't seen that. I've heard a lot about it, but have not seen it. I've been uh, watching it. I also uh, remember watching the first <laughs> original series when it came out back in the mumble, mumble, mumble. Yes, Will. <laughs> yeah, Danger, Will Robinson, Danger. And the feature of both the old version and the reboot version is that they're lost. They don't know where they are. So this is not a an insignificant problem given that the space is really, really, really big. And if you move any distance away from the solar system, a lot of the things that we are familiar with, these familiar constellations we use to navigate, yep. become distorted and you are unable to navigate using those constellations. Now, in the first, first Lost in Space, in order to find out where they were, rather than use telescopes, they did an EVA to look outside the spacecraft with just their eyes, which is kind of stupid. In the, se in the second one, they just did lots and lots of star comparisons. But what if we had a, a stellar GPS system? Yep. We need something where you have a good galactic coverage where you can see these objects from huge distances away where they're really obvious what they are. So obviously, for example, the Southern Cross, a very familiar constellation to us, you only have to get about 50 light years away and the Southern Cross no longer looks very cross-like. Exactly, uh, yep. Even yep. further, most of our constellations uh, have distorted beyond recognition. Yep. And you might be able to follow that through computer programs, but what would be good would be to have something that you could see from enormous distances away, that we, uh, the relative position won't change that much if you uh, move over large distances and are very distinctive. I mean, one star, one blue-white star looks very much like a blue-white star. So what has been done is to use pulsars for navigation. And so what they've done is they've created a map of galactic pulsars. Yep. So pulsars are good for several reasons. One is that each pulsar is distinctive. So you, you know that rather than looking at one strange yellow star, looks very much like another medium-sized yellow star. Whereas pulsars have very distinctive pulse timings and it's yep. very, very easy to identify the pulses. Also, you can, uh, because of the nature of their signal, they're very intense and so you can pick them up from great distances. So they form the basis of a potential galactic GPS system by knowing the positions of the pulsars and keeping an eye on them, you'd be able to find out where you were with a great degree of certainty. Even if you were to leave the galaxy, as happens in Lost in Space, by surveying the pulsars, we know both the galactic pulsars and the extragalactic pulsars, we'd be able to find out our position in space so long as we didn't go too many galaxies over. Yep. It's going to be, it'd be quite good. They may say, okay, what's the point of having a galactic GPS seeing as we haven't got out of our own solar system or even very deep into our solar system? 
But even so, being able to accurately position yourself in space is very important to modern space probes. At the moment, they do it using basically telescopes tracking on stars. But if your telescope drifts off a bit, or occasionally the flashes in the CCD cams can confuse the object, or if you've had a uh, system shut down and you need to relocate your navigation star, this can all cause problems. So if you have this, uh, this GPS technology, even if uh, you don't have to worry about trying to track these, uh, a single star, you've got a number of different objects which you can track and which can very precisely determine your location in the solar system. So this makes it exceedingly helpful for navigation within the solar system. Fantastic, Ian. Maybe that's something that the writers of Lost in Space, they might have missed that paper. <laughs> Although they probably did miss that paper. But however, that's a, uh, a lot of us who are familiar with pulsars came up thought about this general idea ages ago. But the difference between, of course, when you're thinking about something in terms of a science fiction show uh, 10 years ago and uh, actually implementing it in a real system is uh, they're what they're going to actually use is look uh, at the X-ray pulsars. Yep. Rather than the radio pulsars, they're going to look at the X-ray pulsars. The technology is quite, uh, quite difficult. So even though people like science fiction fans like myself thought about the idea of a pulsar navigation system a long time ago, implementing it's an entirely different thing. But then again, the, the, the whole point of the science in shows like Lost in Space is just to help the plot along. So even though you go, oh, look, we could have a really cool, hyper-accurate uh, uh, GPS system using pulsars, that sort of wipes out the whole, whole plot. If they're not lost in the first place, you can't have a lost in space. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. No worries. It was a pleasure to be on and a pleasure to share the joys of the night sky. And uh, it looks like for both of us, we're going to be having clear skies for a little while <laughs> and no refreshing rain. Well, you take care, Ian, and have a great week, mate. And we'll you talk too. to you in two weeks' time. No worries. We'll catch you then. And here's our news roundup for Astrophys 56. First up, an update on the Multination SKA project from AAP. The Murchison Widefield Array Radio Telescope in a remote part of Western Australia is now 10 times more powerful with the addition of 2,048 antennas. Doubling the number of antennas at the Murchison Widefield Array in a remote part of Western Australia has made the radio telescope 10 times more powerful as it explores the evolution of the universe. The array is one of four precursor telescopes for the much larger billion-dollar Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, joint project with South Africa and now has more than 4,000 antennas with the completion of its Phase two expansion. John Curtin Distinguished Professor Stephen Tingay said the tenfold increase in power would produce much higher resolution images. Phase 1 of the MWA began operations in 2013 
and has been surpassing expectations, Professor Tingay said, fueling more than 100 scientific papers and about 5,000 citations. Recently, astronomers used the MWA to identify our first known visitor from interstellar space. The 200-metre-long cigar-shaped object named Aumuamua was initially thought to be a comet or asteroid, and exactly what it is will remain a mystery as it's left our solar system. That was a weird one, Professor Tingay told AAP. The MWA has certainly discovered some surprising things. We look at everything from what's going on in our atmosphere to determining all of the objects in our galaxy and the structure of our galaxy. The big thing is, the MWA is looking back in time to the period immediately after the Big Bang, when the first stars and galaxies were forming for the very first time. Phase 1 generated an astonishing 20 petabytes of data, and the Phase 2 expansion will yield a mind-boggling 80 petabytes of data over the next five years. There's a bunch of things that we know about that we're going to learn, but probably what is most exciting are the things we can't yet imagine, Professor Tingay said. The SKA build will begin in 2020, and when complete, it will be 50 times more powerful than Phase 2 of the NWA. We're taking our steps along the way to the big game, which will be the SKA, Professor Tingay said. Next, from the Chinese Zhonghua News Agency. Watch out for an exciting new lunar mission later this year from China. Shanghai 4 is a mission which will attempt the first ever soft landing on the far side of a moon with a lander and rover in late 2018. As the lunar far side never faces the Earth, a relay satellite is required to be in place to facilitate communications between terrestrial ground stations and the Shangi lander and rover. It's planned to launch from Zhisheng Satellite Launch Centre on May 21 via a Long March 4C rocket. The relay satellite is based on a small satellite platform developed by the China Academy of Space Technology and equipped with modified newly developed components in order to meet the extra challenges posed by its mission requirements. The satellite will operate in a halo orbit around the gravitationally stable second Earth moon Lagrange point, more than 60,000 kilometres away from Melanda and Rover on the lunar far side. And finally, from Kiona Smith and the Astrophysical Journal, April 2018. Maser emission from gravitational states on isolated neutron stars. That's the article by Nikita Tepliakov and Tatiana Vovk. Ivan Ruklenko and Rudy Rozdeshtvensky. The mechanics of pulsars may have finally been unravelled. As Professor Bales explained earlier in today's show, pulsars are amazing with some bewildering behaviour and understanding their mechanics is a rich area of research. 
a Russian team led by Nikita Teplakov and Tatiana Vovk may have just explained some of the longest-standing questions about pulsars. Exactly how are pulsar beams produced? Just to recap, pulsars are a type of neutron star, what is left behind after a supernova, crushed into a 20-kilometre ball by its own gravity, and a single teaspoon would weigh about a billion tonnes. The only denser object in the universe is a black hole. Pulsars rotate at an amazing variety of speeds, anywhere from once every 20 seconds to about 700 times a second, and they emit beams of radio waves which, thanks to the rapid spinning, look like regular pulses of energy from here on Earth. So the question is, to determine exactly how pulsars emit their distinctive radio beams. According to this new theoretical model from the Russian team, it's due to the effects of gravity and quantum mechanics on electrons near the polar surfaces of a pulsar. The matter in a neutron star is packed so densely that even an electron can't pass through it. But the neutron star's strong gravity attracts electrons and they pile up in a thin layer at the neutron star's surface. And as they fall inward, they shift to a lower energy state, which causes them to emit the excess energy in the form of radiation, in this case, radio waves. As they move to the lower energy levels, they emit radiation that causes nearby particles to reduce their energy as well, said Nikita Teplakov. So when the astronomers observe the radio signal of a pulsar, what they're really seeing is the signature of electrons falling onto a distant neutron star. In our next three episodes, we have a feature interview on Big Data with Dr. Elena Hyde. We'll hear all about the recently launched test mission from Dr. Jesse Christensen, who is a NASA staff scientist at Caltech's NASA Exoplanet Science Institute. Then we have an episode with Dr. Tamitha Skov, who's Canada's space weather woman, and she'll give us the lowdown on auroras in both hemispheres. So, a lot more exciting astrophysics for you on SoundCloud and iTunes, where you can easily subscribe to Astrophys. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave.